0: Yep. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Associate Professor of Sports Management at the University College in Northern Denmark, Kenneth Corsten, to discuss all things commercialization and the beautiful game. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Connor. Pleasure to be here. Ken, I suppose where to begin? I mean, obviously commercialization being a huge area to dissect. Uh, we're here to speak about its relevance to football but could you elaborate a bit upon commercialization in the aspect of football and I suppose your own role within that
1: yeah um so I've been in in, in football for for many years uh, been playing football um, at the recreational level as a kid uh, moved to to the lead level and um, Moved from being a player into to being a coach with the UEFA A license, and then after um, after living in the U.S., I came back to Denmark and became a co-founder of a sports management uh, program at University College of of Northern Denmark, and uh, did my PhD at University um, of Aarhus at the business school there, and given the fact that uh, i've played a lot of football and and uh, became a coach afterwards football is is dear to my heart and uh, part of my my research has focused on football my my emphasis for my phd was basically the commercialization of sports or more specifically how can you build uh, and manage sports branding processes and um, and capitalize on that, and and looking at sports branding from um, the intersection between sports branding, sports management, and 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 sports economy, and uh, yeah, football became a huge part of that. And and after my PhD, uh, I've also looked even more into to football research, also because at the program in in. All uh, work Denmark, so at University of, of uh, University College of Northern Denmark, we formed a partnership with Fifth Pro um, more than ten years ago. Now, so we have educated professional footballers for, for for many years. So, it has also given good access to to the football world, along with with having uh, a coaching role. So, it was natural for me to to look at football research and commercialization uh, in football given my my business school background so I have a master's of Science in business business economics and MBA and then doing also the PhD at, at a business school combined with some practical experience from from the commercial uh, agenda in in various uh, industries for instance in the media industry that is also a huge investor in in professional football so we, we with, the scene being, being said here, um, I think what, what, what has been most uh, evident to me, uh, being a kid uh, that grew up in the 80s and the 90s, I've also experienced the paradigm shift uh, that happened in professional football commercially uh, in the 1990s with the reformation of, of competition formats, uh, especially taking place in in the beginning of the 1990s the premier league in england is one example the super league in in denmark is another example and then of course also uh, the uefa champions league being a, a third example and then came the bossman ruling in um, the mid 1990s that gave more power to to professional footballers and along with globalization and and uh, technological uh, development we have seen that being enhanced to higher extents with with you know the integration of, of social media platforms and uh, other, other opportunities to give athletes and thus football players a stronger voice. Um, and we have also seen, you know, media development uh, uh, taking place in, in the nexus between traditional uh, sports media and uh, everything that happened with, with the evolution of, of the internet.
0: And as you said there at the beginning, Ken, um, you, were, you had a terrific vantage point between you're involved in the real side of the game, the coaching side, and also the academia side. Um, when was it that you came about this realization that perhaps there was not enough value-driven conversations being had about the growth of the game?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, I think football being being the number one sport in in the world and and, and the most popular sport in 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 the world. Um, there has been a tendency that uh, football was always the, the talk of the town. And and w- with that being said, uh, when, when something is, is popular, and, and to, to use a football analogy, if you're winning, you, you, there's also a probability that sometimes people will rest on their laurels and, and take things for granted. And, and we have seen that to an extent that, football from a business perspective uh, has been growing and growing over the years. And, and people have been discussing, do do we see a saturation in terms of, in, in terms of people's appetite to consume football uh, through the media, to consume uh, football live in, in, in the stadiums. Um, and, 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 what will this uh, do to the price of football? And if we look at media deals, for instance, we have seen that the price has gone up over the years. I did a book chapter along with, with um, two uh, other authors where we looked into the development of the English Premier League. And uh, when, when the Premier League was, was founded in the beginning of the 1990s, on average 2 thirds of the revenue came from match day related revenue uh, sources and today if you take um, if you take a club such as Everton for instance that percentage is is down to approximately 10% so we have seen business models being turned upside down because of the influence of of uh, broadcasting deals so now in 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 a club like Everton broadcasting revenue or more media related revenue is is uh, accounting for for the majority of of the revenue generation so so we have seen that that football has really changed uh, over time and and I think um with the professionalization of of the game and uh, the desire to to see um, improved professionalization processes uh, take place in in, uh, football, it was natural that you need to pay for such a process. So commercialization and, and professionalization of the game uh, went hand in hand. Uh, and and that was for me a natural uh, development. But with the involvement of some of uh, some of the things that I said before, players gaining more power, new technologies and data playing a, a bigger role in professional football, we have also seen more complexity. So the administration and the management uh, side of football, um that side has faced more complexity. So you need people with different competencies than we saw three, four, five decades ago. Uh, now it's a global game, it, it's it's a branding game. Football is is more media, marketing, and event driven than we have ever seen. Um football has moved beyond international borders to an even higher extent that, than we saw decades ago. So now it's not only a matter of of having uh, English content about the the Premier League. Um, now we need Chinese content about the Premier League. Now we need uh, Spanish content. Uh, content about the, the Premier League and so on. So so, the global game has really become the global game, also in terms of the need for new competencies in, in the business of football. And at the same time, the professionalization of, of football has also meant uh, new competencies on the sporting side of football from people that know about, you know, um, set pieces, throw-ins that can be a job in football today, Um, sports analytics or data analytics, sleep experts, nutritional experts, um, the whole mental side of of, of football. And I mean, in in recent years to, to... Add to my own UEFA license, I have taken courses in football analytics, in scouting, and talent identification. So you see a whole, uh, whole new level of specialization that have come into professional football as well, and that also, uh, that also brings. Uh, new requirements for, for coaches because although you may not need to be a specialist in terms of sleeping patterns or nutrition or uh, sports psychology, you still have to to, to know about uh, the development and you have to to to, um, to approach management and leadership um, from a different perspective because, Around professional teams, it's it's no longer a head coach and an assistant coach like you saw with Brian Clough and Peter Taylor back in the days in, in, in the UK. And then you would have a, a goalkeeping coach. Think about the size of the teams and the specialist roles of, of teams if you look at the sporting side of football. and And, and then you you also look at the same uh, development uh, when it comes to the administrative or or management side of of football. Um, I I wrote another book uh, chapter here in the beginning of of this year, or that came out in the beginning of this year, where we approached sports management education and its interaction with, with professional football uh, and, and one of the authors is working for the Danish FA. And, and we have also seen a development not only in Denmark, but also across other European uh, countries and even outside the European Union, that um, there's been an interplay to, to a higher extent between sports management education or sports science education and professional football uh, think about germany winning the world cup in in 2014 in brazil and and uh, their interplay with with the sportshochschule uh, köln or or, or or the sports school in in cologne um, that that is just one example and we see the same in 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 denmark that uh, there are more overlaps between academia and uh, and sports Whether we're talking about sports governing bodies like FA or like the FA or like uh, um, leagues or directly.
0: Yeah, and I think one very interesting thing about football nowadays, Ken, it seems to me to be the perfect intersection and meeting points between career politicians, so to speak, and new upstarts around the corner. And with that, year on, year out, we've noticed a brand new range of, I suppose, people coming in and capitalise upon the, these value gaps within the football and industry. Um, just look at the range of ownership groups coming in with varying incentives these days. Then we speak about motives for ownership, we look at sports washing, or even we look at alternative media platforms these days, looking at providing economies of scale, bundling TV rights of higher value, something which you've wrote about. But I think what's highly pertinent and on everybody's lips at the moment too, and it's something which must be brought up. Unfortunately, Kenneth, we're recording now on the day of February the 24th, when there are some serious kind of world affairs in order. Um, I know, just off camera, you spoke to me about your big on penning an article together. You have even spoke with a Ford's editor about the potential impact that these sanctions in Russia could have on a modern game. Could you bring us up to speed?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a sad situation coming out of the pandemic uh, into you know warfare on on European. Uh, soil and and for me it, it raises the question can European football or soccer and other international sporting events live without the involvement of, of Russia? Um, I wrote a little bit about it earlier today and I, I said in the end of, of what I, Um, wrote, if if there's any meaning in discussing fair play and codes of conduct in sports, then it's time to show Russia the red card. Um, Because, I mean, sport holds so many good things. And uh, I'm a firm believer in, in the utilitarian principle of the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But we have also seen a football world and, and it starts from the top even in terms of FIFA, UEFA and other sports governing bodies uh, down through the league level to, to the club level where uh, these sports properties have not been, at least from my point of view, critically, uh, critical enough uh, when considering um, what um, what the, the the checks that they receive from, for instance, sponsors such as Gazprom um, comes with, and I mean, talking about sports washing, there 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 are many states or, or countries where. They have different standards than, than what we see in, in, in the UK or in Scandinavia or in, in, in other parts of the Western world when it comes to human rights, uh, good governance and, and, and those uh, things. And I think that... Enough is enough, and um, the sports governing body, starting with FIFA and UEFA, must take this um, sad situation that has now occurred with Russia invading Ukraine and simply show a no-tolerance policy towards Russia and, and, and say, you know, we can definitely... We can definitely live without uh, Russia in the international uh, football uh, in the international football world because Russia has applied sports or sporting events that could be the Olympics in Sochi or the FIFA World Cup in in two uh, thousand and eighteen as geopolitical positioning, um, while also Engaging in soft power sponsorships, um, Gazprom in relation to, for instance, Schalke in in the German Bundesliga, or we have seen Aeroflot uh, also being an example of a soft power uh, sponsorship. And and I mean, now it's just the way I see it, time to cut all Russian uh, ties without uh, hesitation. And I mean, I, I said in the beginning here that I've done a lot of research in, in sports branding. And uh, for me, timing is always critical in, in sports branding contexts. And, and with that in mind, FIFA, UEFA and other sports governing bodies must now, with all that happened uh, in, in Ukraine over the past couple of days, they must um, repair what I would call the silent and passive uh, acceptance of Russia's negative and and damaging behavior by displaying a full exclusion of any Russian association. From ownership of sports assets, we have also, before this podcast, discussed uh, Chelsea and Abramovich they must also um, display a full exclusion of these soft power sponsorships and, and hosting roles in terms of sports events. If if we talk about where uh, the UEFA Champions League final was supposed to be played. Uh, and I mean, time has, has shown too many sports properties and governing bodies having these uncritically um, approaches to, to the money sent to them from what I would call the wrong senders. But, but now there is not only a change, but also the right moment to, to highlight um, that football can live without, uh, without Russia. And um, the Russian connection does not enhance the perceived quality and the perceived quality is an an important and vital brand equity element and the Russian connection does not enhance that that perceived quality of European or global uh, um, sports. So as I... As I said in in the beginning, because this violating behavior from from Russia, which goes beyond any reasonable political um, conduct, because this has taken place, it's time to to show Russia the the, the red card. Uh, but again, it illustrates what what I said earlier that we have. We've come a long way since the public service product days of professional football. So money has been too influential and money has set aside um, proper moral compasses in in the governance of, of football. And it's a problem if If we see that at the very top, starting with FIFA and UEFA and and down um, covering the football landscape as as an umbrella, uh, because we we need good role models. And it's also a dilemma in an era where we have never highlighted sustainability, social responsibility, diversity. Equality, social justice, and similar aspects that may influence society in a positive way. We have never uh, promoted these elements to a higher extent than we see right now. And then at the same time, we experience these problematic issues. Uh, so, So, I mean, it also emphasizes the complexity of football management and the need for proper competencies and contextual understanding and to move away from what I would call areas of of mismanagement in in professional football.
0: Well, the issue for me, Ken, stems, you know, the fish ruts from the head. To me, it comes from UEFA and it comes from FIFA. It's been a reoccurring pattern for years that these these governing organisations have offered their hand and such entities have taken their arms. They had so many opportunities to dispel the monster when it was at its very embryo, when it was in its embryonic stage, when it was small. And now that it's here on its front door, the problem has grown disproportionately. Nassim Taleb speaks in his book, Skin in the Game, you cannot separate ethics from skill set and competency. Now, that's an alarming quote in the context of football when it's been going on now for 20, 30 years. We speak about the need of apt uh, corporate governance in the game of football. This comes in the light of recent weeks when Dazone, a big sports broadcaster and firm, published their 2020 accounts which account for a 1.3 billion euros loss. Hmm. So I think those are important. Those are important events to note within the context of what we've just discussed. Yeah. I mean, to- talking about the
1: commercialization of, of football, we have seen that revenue levels have grown considerably over time. But we we still see clubs with huge debt levels. And I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic didn't help. I mean, look at look at FC Barcelona. I saw, was it Kicker or, or Bild that came out with with an article uh, about Bayern Munich, which is synonymous for years of being a, a very well-run football club. But but there was an article saying, you know maybe even by Munich may be forced to sell players in, in the years to come. And I mean, it, it, it stresses some of the problematic issues in, in football. If, if you see very good growth levels on the revenue side over time, but you have what I would call a few actors, the players taking extreme amounts of, of, um, of the revenues, then it's a thin line. Then it's a thin line. And then in professional football and, and other elite sports the most important thing for people in charge is the ability to compete. So they will always strive to compete. And that's where we see a dilemma or a paradox, because if if they are striving to improve the ability to compete, and we know at the end of the UEFA Champions League or at the end of the Premier League or the Bundesliga or La Liga, There's only one winner, but but everyone will will strive to compete. Then you you will see some of these circumstances where fair play and, and good conduct and good governance is kicked out of the box. Um, because it it doesn't help these entities to to win or or to improve the ability to to compete, and that's problematic. And that may may speak uh, to the fact or in favor of the fact that we 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 may need additional measures to enhance good governance practices in professional football, we may need additional intervention, whether it's regarding who should be um, capable of qualifying to own a professional uh, football club and to operate a professional football club in the UK, in Denmark, in Belgium, in Spain, Um, But but also other guidelines, as we saw now with FC Barcelona losing losing Messi, although both parties seem to have the willingness to uh, extend their their partnership simply because um, that the financial aspects didn't match what was sound or reasonable um, economic uh, responsibility, and then you know he could move to Paris Saint Germain, which is owned by Qatar Sports Investments. Uh, so I mean, what what does all this show? Is, is this is this is this a good business acumen? Uh, I mean, many people, at least from a moral and ethical perspective, can can raise questions ab- ab- about this. Certainly. Certainly. So, so I think that we see we see a lot of uh, areas of of mismanagement in, in, in football and We have also seen over the years that the gap between the richest clubs and and the rest of the European football pyramid, um, that gap has, has widened. And I mean, there's been a constant power struggle. I mean, before the UEFA Champions League, it was the European Cup and it was only a tournament, a European tournament for for the domestic champions. But the power struggle has meant more power to the big leagues and the big clubs over time. So it's not a coincidence that we we have seen the threat of piracy leagues and that we saw everything that was... um, that was happening uh, last year in terms of the European Super League, especially at a time when a global pandemic um, hit international football and either stopped the production line for a while or at least devalued um, the revenue uh, generation and the production line of, of professional uh, football. and then. Then came JP Morgan Chase and and said, you know, hey, we can help. And and I mean, going back to the ability to compete, some of the top clubs that have invested in in the best players, Real Madrid, um, FC Barcelona, and, you know, the other clubs that were in um, the group trying to break out of of the European football pyramid uh, in the form of the European uh, Super League was ready to protect their position in the top of the hierarchy. So, so I mean, interesting development, but not a surprise. I mean, I wrote, was it in 18, uh, a book chapter on the UEFA Champions League in, in a Routledge book called... Uh, Um, football business and management and yeah I mean the threat of of piracy league uh, leagues was was not new when we saw the European uh, Super League and it's something that we will see again from my perspective unless we see intervention that will uh, change things and, and I would also assume that right now we have governing bodies across Europe discussing what qualifies as, as, as good ownership and you know um, how can we work with this in, in the future and work on preventing um, the threat from from the likes of of the European Super League. But then again, I mean, there has also been a dispute after the European Super League between FIFA and, and, and UEFA in terms of battling for, for money with, with FIFA wanting to have the World Cup every second year. And, and, and why is that? It's just another power struggle because you have the rest of the world looking into what happens in Europe. And FIFA represents not only European countries but also the rest of the world. And there may be countries that say, you know, hey, we put pressure on FIFA then, because why is the revenue generation only for European countries? So there are many ongoing power struggles in in the world of of football. And unless we really see um, harder intervention, it will continue to 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 play a, a vital role. Uh, because I mean FIFA and UEFA could join forces when they had to protect their interests against um, the threat from the European Super League. But then they they were um, not that slow to to break apart afterwards uh,
0: given you know this pressure from FIFA. And having spent your whole life in football, Ken, and knowing what you know now, having conducted thousands of hours on research on the game, can you still sit down now and enjoy a game of top-flight football, knowing what you know? That that that's a
1: good and and uh, an intelligent uh, question, Connor, and. Um... I'm a little bit split because I am a football lover and and um uh, I'm also a little romantic when it comes to to football. I mean AC Milan has not uh, been playing at at the same high level uh, as they they used to do when the Italian Serie A was was the number 1 league uh, in the 1990s and uh, late 1980s. And, and that's when I was a kid. So I've liked AC Milan ever since. Um, and that, uh, that tells something about my romantic uh, football heart. And And I'm not that fond of some of these Newly rich clubs that have bought their way into to football, and and I I enjoy watching um, movies like The Dame United about uh, everything that happened back then with with Brian Clough, who was um, shortly in Leeds before he came and 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 took uh, Nottingham Forest to to European Success, Um, and I really like the German Bundesliga for their fan welfare maximization and their fan-centric approach. The fifty-plus-one rule, so um, the high focus on on the membership-based approach to football, which also have influenced um, the league to protecting the core of its football culture and uh, may have led to the highest uh, average attendance level across uh, professional football leagues worldwide. So I am a a romantic football guy and and I really enjoy that. and, And sitting down and, and, and watching important games. I'm also a football coach and a former player. So, of course, I enjoy the skill sets uh, of, of the best players playing for, for instance, Manchester City. I don't like the way City has come to the very top of of. Uh, global football but I admire the way that they play under Guardiola um, That that's fantastic uh, but then again seeing the other day that uh, there was a celebration of of, uh, of Marco Reus in Borussia Dortmund a guy that has always been with the club at a time where you know that's, that's a rare occasion. That's something that I admire, that you know, you still see that some of these players in professional football, even in top professional football, they still have a heart where you you see that the heart is beating for certain clubs. I mean, the likes of Steven Gerrard or Paolo Maldini, uh, that, that's a rare occasion in professional football today. And we have seen and talked about that professional football has also developed towards players having more power and, and and players and especially their agents being paid on a commission base. So you can draw parallels to real estate agents saying, you know, the higher the price of a house and 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 the higher the frequency of, of selling houses the more they earn. Uh, So so you have some, some forces here that may shape football in, in a certain direction. So, I mean, habits is influencing behavior and behavior is, is shaping culture. So it's a different football culture and professional top football today as than, than we saw 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, and, there's certainly things that I don't like about that development. Um, but I mean, that's what happens when you start to 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 give away power and 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 give away power to players, to agents, because football has been an ego-driven business for many years and when you give away too much power see what happens see what happens i mean you you you,
0: you get a different ball game yeah but for me if you look at the reality cam of power laws it doesn't matter if you're A real estate agent in Denmark, where you are now, or a real estate agent in Dubai, it's always a select few that control the vast amount of resources. It's the same with football. Yeah, 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 exactly. Football clubs. But for me, there has to be some sort of conversation where they can come to a compromise. Whereas you look at fan engagement, obviously that came in years and years ago, but people were always skeptical of it now. Or really, is it absolutely necessary that when we look at fan engagement nowadays, for example, these tools of the future, they're being built on blockchain, hmm. We're in the general relative domain of life, we're still trying to figure out what that actually entails. Yes, in football, yeah. we just roll out the red carpet continuously. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and
1: y- you can say where there's money, there's greed. And if you have a, a marketplace with, with the money flow, there, there will be an interest to, to gain a share of that money flow. And like I said before, football is an ego-driven business and, and, and people, especially players, but also you know, other central actors in the game, agents, coaches, etc. They want to capitalize on their careers. And, and interesting development because after I was the head coach for the men's reserves in Aalborg, in, in one, of, one of the Super League clubs in, in Denmark, I took the head coaching position on, on the women's side in, in January 2018 and at the time, they had just fired the coach in the bottom of... They, they, play, they played in the bottom of the third uh, tier and just, you know, saved um, the existence in, in that league three points above, above um, the relegation zone. And we, we had to build everything... Uh, again, and luckily, and with, with blood, sweat, and tears, and hard work, uh, we succeeded in, in getting the promoted to, to the first division, our first season. And we got promoted from the third tier to the first division, and then we ended up winning the first division as a newly promoted team that following fall. And when we, when we won the first division, the club, um, the club um, established a limited liability company from a strategic uh, risk scenario. So all board BK, there's a mother club, there's an LLC that runs the Super League team uh, and the academy teams on the men's side. And then, the club uh, established a similar structure on the women's side and when everything culminated then with us winning the first division making in it to a pro- making it to a promotional playoff and and gaining um, promotion to top eight or to the super league in the summer of of 2020, before I, I stepped down as head coach, I saw a development that suddenly we had gone from amateur status to top-flight women's football in Denmark. And suddenly, you know, all players wanted agents. So it was basically... <laughs> Uh, more or less something that happened uh, overnight that was that that was the feeling, and that was overwhelming for me. It was not shocking or surprising, it was just overwhelming, and, and it just shows something about the development uh, in, in football when you professionalize and then comparing the women's game with the men's game. I mean you have to multiply times 10 times 25 times 50 because the women's game is still commercially, a commercially immature product compared to the men's game that has been highly commercialized for decades. So I think these, uh, these parallels um, hold a lot
0: of meaning. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, footballers, male or female, always know their value deep down, and we've seen a growing really? trend. we've seen a growing trend in the game recently, Kenneth, where we see a lot of players renegotiating the terms over the intellectual property rights in their contracts over a specified reason, which are non fungible tokens NFTs, and obviously you do a lot of advisory work too in conjunction with your academia work and. But for any sort of organization or perhaps athlete wishing to get involved within this domain, what advice would you have for them? Can you repeat that, Connor? Yeah, just regarding the subject of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, we've seen recently, of course, a lot of athletes renegotiating the intellectual property rights of their contracts with clubs over the use of NFTs. Um, if you were in an advisory position uh, to any of these sporting institutions or athletes themselves, what advice or what insight could you deliver to them on these NFTs? I mean, NFTs is
1: also something that uh, really um, came to, to the surface um, as part of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, not surprising for me because, again, with professionalization comes commercialization, and we have seen clubs trying to find new revenue sources all the time from you know shirt sponsorships to suddenly selling stadium naming rights to um, brand activation of personal players, and now with technology. Um, Tokenization is is something that comes with a lot of opportunities, especially in terms of catering to the younger generations, the technol- technology savvy generations, people that you know have have grown up in in a time where IT and, and, and data um, is a natural part of, of their lives. So I would definitely give the adwi- uh, the advice that, you know, it's, it's it's a world of opportunities also for, for football clubs. However, when trying to to navigate in in the world of opportunities, there are some ethical concerns because with commercialization, the price of football has increased over time. And in the ecosystem of, of football business, the fans have paid higher prices over time. So you, you speak about fan engagement. So if, if we're talking about f- f- tokenization or, or fan tokenization here, uh, Connor, I, I would say that clubs and football entities or properties, rights holders, should be aware of um, the vol- volatility um of, of um of tokenization and they should be aware of the fact that what they offer fans should hold a value and not only be a symbol of trying to squeeze the lemon even further in terms of fans that already pay a high price to consume football because the higher up the ladder you you get when it comes to fan identification, the more you have a tendency to to consume um, things related to your favorite club, whether you know it's attending um, matches live uh, in the stadium, uh, whether it comes to having uh, the biggest, television package at home so that you can sit in your couch with the convenience of your remote control to having the first Jersey, the second Jersey, the third Jersey. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, that the fact that you have a saying in terms of determining um the song that is played in the stadium when your favorite team scores a goal. I mean, what, what, what's the real value of that? Uh, but then again, you know, I don't represent any uh, segment in, in, in football that may have value for, for some people. But I think that uh, the smart clubs here would, would think about how to conceptualize tokenization. And, and find ways to, to bring something of real value to, to, to fans. That could be educational opportunities through the lens of their favorite football club. I mean, if, if, if you have an interest in learning about finance, Connor, why not just learn about finance through the lens of football? Or if you want to learn about the value of nutrition, why not do it through the lens of, of your football club? Or if you want to learn about journalism or the media spotlight, why not do it through the lens of your favorite football club? These are just creative ideas that would bring real value to, to fans and stay a little bit out of, of Um, of the dangerous roads when it comes to volatility um, and the volatility that we have seen in relation to some areas of cryptocurrencies and tokenization.
0: And I think this is under the current guise of Web3. I mean, you've wrote a little paper on this before, Ken. I mean, what were the yeah. what were the main takeaways you yourself when you were doing that paper in terms of what will actually be the impact of Web three in football? I mean, what are some of the technical and data uh, and initiatives we can expect to see over the coming years?
1: I think, uh, as Marshall McLuhan once said. Um... The medium is the message and, and we also live in a global village. So, so the world has, has become a, a smaller uh, place and especially for, for football clubs uh, located in, in, for instance, top five leagues around Europe. I think that we can expect to see more opportunities and revenues um coming from from such technologies. and um, I think that we will see more and more clubs and and football entities trying to gain more contextual uh, understanding from how they can exploit uh, these, uh, these opportunities, but I mean, it will also it it will also um, need these moral and ethical um, con- considerations um, be, be, because we we still need to see more. Um, more scenarios of providing real uh, value, but I think that um, digitization is is here to stay, and and it will continue to to grow because it speaks the language of, of younger um, of of younger generations, and uh, it, it also. Um, It also provides an avenue for for more precision marketing, for um, football um, properties and rights holders. So I think we'll see more and more sports properties, football properties, football rights holders trying to educate themselves and and their customer base about the opportunities linked to Web3 and um, tokenization. And you have also seen that professional athletes have gone into this world um, and that will that will be a driving force for, for this development uh, because the popularity among athletes to dive into, um, dive into um, venture capital and investment um, opportunities even before they they stop playing. Um, that that's a growing tendency and and I think these athletes, given the development of of social media are, so influential today that uh, that uh, we'll see a bridge between athlete branding and opportunities through web three and tokenization to an even higher extent in in the years to to come I mean just look at cristiano ronaldo and and the amount of followers that that he has on on social media and this is just. another avenue to to capitalize on on what he does. And I mean, LeBron James paved the way in terms of starting uninterrupted and think about the rhetoric meaning of uninterrupted, giving athletes a stronger voice. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the new Netflix series about Neymar Jr., who's the producer. Uninterrupted, right? That they are part of the... They are part of the production of this. So we talked about power struggles, but you also see athletes, especially the prominent ones, taking even more control of their brands.
0: Controlling the narrative. Exactly. It's always tough to delve deep into topics such as this commercialization within football because as always, it's a compromise and you're standing on the precipice of creativity and reality and obviously you have the privilege of doing that day in, day out, Kenneth. But for anybody wishing to embark on a similar journey such as yourself and explore this niche within the football industry, what advice would you have for them? I think... uh...
1: Of course, being passionate uh, and knowledgeable about football helps because, at least for me, the the sport of sports, and not only the business of sports, but the sport of sports, so the sporting side of, of football, is still the driving force. So being passionate about the game, that helps. If you're passionate about something, there's also a higher chance that you'll be good at something. Um, and you asked me this question in, in the beginning of what I thought was needed when trying to bridge academia with, with the football world. And I think we, we also need more people in, in the football economy that, Strive to bridge the understanding of football. So the sporting side of football with the business side of football. Because you can't separate the two. I mean, cohesion here is so important. I mean, to give you an example, I wrote a book chapter. about technology and data in football and how football rights holders could capitalize from that. And it was based on tracking data. So the sporting side providing content that could help clubs or football rights holders capitalize. And I mean, the passion for for the game is the driving force. What would football be without fans if you, were, if you were to analyze football as a business? No media investments, no sponsorships. I mean, the fans equal the running engine of football. And we talked about these ecosystems. So if broadcasting companies think that they have paid a a price that is too high for the football rights, who's paying the price? You are, I am. We just pay a higher price for, you know, the convenience of sitting in our couch with, with the remote control. Right. Or, you know, price for sponsors to associate themselves with live football will be higher right and 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 i think um there are only a few assets that can move customers and market shares in 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 the same way as as live sports and i mean football here is the pinnacle being sport number one in the world
0: food for thought Um, there's a lot we've discussed over this past hour which I'm still pondering about so much as so I'll have to invite you back for a round two but yeah, Kenneth, I'm happy to to do that at some point Connor. Kenneth where's good for everybody to keep up to date with your musings C- can you repeat that where where good for everybody to keep up to date with your work
1: to keep up to date with my work. And I, I mean, I try to be active um, on social media. So, so LinkedIn is, um, is a good and, and, and um, professional platform to, to engage with me, happy to connect with, with people that find, uh, find what I talk about uh, useful and, uh, I believe in, in the process of lifelong learning. Uh, life is, is, uh, is an adventure and uh, it's a journey and, and you have to learn uh, every day. So, I mean, human relationships is, is you know, the most important thing in, in, in football. So LinkedIn would be a good, good place to to follow my work, uh, I also have a, a website called kennethquartzon.com so so that could be be another avenue. And uh, I try to to write now and then. Uh, sometimes um, I'm successful in sitting down and, and finding the time to to write also for my blog and. Um, but uh, again, I have a busy schedule also doing consulting on top of my research and teaching at um, at the university or across other universities uh, in different countries. And then, I mean, football take uh, takes up a lot of my time uh, now not being the head coach for, for a specific team uh, anymore since I stepped down in 2020, but... I'm still um, I'm still a scout, and uh, now I'm a supervisor for some of the youth teams and their coaches um, in in Allborg. So so I'm still on the pitch quite a lot, and still spend four to six days per week on football. So (laughs) so uh, if you come to Denmark, you're welcome to visit me in Allborg as well.
0: I think visitors land overdue four years Mm -hmm. in the making. But I, kind of, yeah. absolute pleasure to have you on.
1: My pleasure, uh, Connor. Always um, fantastic to get the chance to discuss uh, football with you, whether it's on, on this podcast or um, in in uh, other areas. So. Thank you for for your good work and and keep up um, the good show here, Connor, and the pleasure to participate.